Let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, thank you for this morning, for this beautiful day. We pray, Father, that you would, uh, as we take this time, we set it aside to hear from you, that you would accomplish that which you set forth to purpose to do in each of our hearts. So uh, I pray, Father, you'd find hearts that are yielded, that give, you'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that understand, Lord, what you want to speak to us today. We commit this time to you and ask that your will be done in us and through us, in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in the Gospel of John, as you know, uh, for months now, and now we're going to jump into chapter 6. I love chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. I mean, there is so much here, and it's really, it's kind of a turning point in a lot of people's lives, and we'll see that as we go along. We'll be here for probably, uh, because of taking a break for, uh, oh, Palm Sunday and then Easter, we'll be here for probably the next month or so. But I want to look at a couple of things this morning. We're going to look at the story that, and it's more than a Bible story, you'll see that as we go, uh, of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000, and then we'll look at him walking on the water on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, But as we unpack this, we'll notice some things about it. And what we're looking at, beginning with the this time where he begins to take this little kid's sack lunch and break the bread and break it and break it and break it, that he does some miraculous things, things that are beyond the natural, into the supernatural. And he does those things for a purpose. Uh, I had looked at this chapter for many years and I thought, why on earth is all of this chapter devoted to bread? And because Jesus does a lot of uh, teaching on that, using it as a, a metaphor, an allegory, or a parable. Uh, and then in the middle of this, there's this story, this account of him walking on water across the lake, and these guys getting into trouble about it. So I've purposely named this, Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish, because really, feeding the 5,000 is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing story, but it's not, it's not the center of the story. The center of the story is a a remarkable lesson that he has for his guys and that he has for us. And so as we go along, we'll see that. But looking at bread, I mean, my mother made bread. I used I remember being a kid and I would be up in my bedroom and this wonderful smell would come into my room. And and I, I would perk up as soon as I smelled it because I knew that that mixed with some butter on hot home-baked bread was one of the best things I had ever experienced in my whole life. It was just delicious. And I'm the son of a baker, so I know bread. Uh, my dad was a baker for 50 years. And, and it was something that, it was satisfying to me. It, was, it brought, and even when I smell bread now, my wife makes wonderful bread, uh, and when I smell it now, it just takes me back to that comfort, that just that place. And you guys probably know what I mean. There are certain things that trigger memories that are very fond. And, and, and I thought, well, that's just interesting because it, there was a satisfaction in mom's home-baked bread that I never really got anywhere else as far as bread goes. And, uh, and, and again, it's just a wonderful thing. It was, and, and as I look at that and I relate it to spiritual things because that's what Jesus does. He often does these things in the physical and he relates them to the spiritual. I see that that brought a sense of satisfaction in my life. And I see that God's will, Jesus, in these Gospels, in these accounts of his life, it is his will to show that he is the ultimate satisfaction in our lives. Uh, 
And that is what he is about. He is there to, yes, be our provider, but he's also there to be our covering. He's there to be uh, the Lord in our lives. And so uh, as we look at this, Jesus uses bread here in chapter 6. But remember, he used water uh, when he talks about living water uh, in John chapter 4, when he was with the woman at the well, remember that? And he said, drink the water I give you, and out of your innermost being will gush forth rivers, torrents of living water. And then in, in uh, John chapter uh, 1, we see that Jesus uses light. It says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And he goes on to say that men, he came as a light into the world, but men love darkness more than they love light. And so he uses these simple illustrations from nature, from the created realm, to drive home spiritual truths. That's what he does with bread in this chapter. The bread is significant only because it's representative of something in the spiritual realm that he wants to get across to his guys and to people in general. So we'll look at this in the first 15 verses of John chapter 6 here. Jesus talks about this whole thing with the miracle of feeding the, it's not really 5,000, it says 5,000 men. It's a probably, if you include women and children, he fed, I would imagine, about 15,000 people that day. So that's part of why I avoid calling it feeding the 5,000 because we're kind of counting everybody here. Uh, even though in, when John wrote this, they still looked at men in a certain light and all that. But that's fine. Um, anyway, so as he's going through here, he brings these different things to light that I think are really interesting. Uh, we look at every honorable pleasure that we have in life. It's designed by God to give us a faint taste of heaven and to make us hunger for Christ. That's what he does here. Every partial satisfaction we have in this life points to the perfect satisfaction that we have in Jesus. So as we look at this miracle that Jesus does with bread, this is the only miracle that's found in all four Gospels. These events left a lasting impression on all four of the guys that wrote the accounts of Jesus' life. This miracle is, it's, and I'm going to blend those stories as much as I can to, to bring them together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have accounts of the, the feeding here of the, of the 15,000, 5,000, whatever. Uh, they have this miracle recorded. And so as we go along, I think that you'll see, and there, is a couple of, there are a couple of statements that are made by the other gospel writers that add perfect clarity to what's going on here. And so it's important that as we go along, don't worry about trying to go out to the other gospels. You're welcome to do that in your own time to sort of reconcile them all with each other. But just... Again, understand that we're going to move quickly through here, want to cover a lot of ground, and, and see just exactly what it is that God has for us. So we see here, beginning, that he once again does something in the natural to illustrate something in the spiritual. We talked about this before, guys, because what happened uh, up until this point in the Gospel of John, and including this time in the Gospel of John, every time that Jesus illustrates something in the spiritual, the people kind of tilt their heads and wonder, what on earth is he talking about? Remember, we looked at what he said to the, the Pharisees. He said, destroy this temple. And they said, well, what do you mean? It took 46 years to build this temple. And he was talking about his body. Uh, he told Nicodemus, he said, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus's response is, well, the womb's too small. I don't know how I could do that. And then he, he tells the woman at the well, he says, you need to have living water that I'll give you the water. And she says, you don't even have a bucket. 
And, and then there, well, he's still at the well. He, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And his disciples start looking at each other saying, who gave him a sandwich? You know, who fed him? Who brought him lunch? Uh, and then last chapter, in, in chapter five, we looked at the man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus walks up to this guy in the middle of this whole crowd of people that are all sick and, and infirmed in one way or another. And he says, do you want to be made well? And the guy says, well, I don't have anybody to help me. And here we'll see that Jesus essentially says, I fed you, and now you want me to be your king. Totally misunderstanding what his purpose was and is. So as I mentioned, the first part of this is devoted to this miracle. And then after that, with the rest of the chapter, 71 verses, long chapter, uh, it is devoted to, with increasingly offensive and provocative language, what they were supposed to have seen and did not see. So, I can easily deduce from that that God wants us to understand these things. It's not in all four Gospels just because these guys all thought it was a fun story. It's a great Bible story. But it's so much more, gang, and I just want us to catch that. My prayer is that we will understand exactly, by the time we leave here this morning, that we'll understand exactly what it is that Jesus is wanting to accomplish with these men, because there's a direct application to each one of us. So with that, looking at John chapter 6, let's look at verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, then a great multitude followed him because they had seen the signs which he had performed on those who were diseased. Now, Matthew says he was moved with compassion. He looked out at the multitude. He lifted up his eyes. He saw this huge crowd of people, and they had chased him essentially around the sea. He'd gotten in his boat with the guys, and they had come over to a deserted point in, on the lake. And they were actually, they were going on sort of a retreat. They were getting away by themselves to pray. John the Baptist had just been executed. News had come to Jesus. If you look in the other gospels, you see that the, his death was just preceding when these events took place. And so he wants to get away. He's pulling his men away to have a time alone with them. But the people, I mean, look at, I mean, it's a lake. And so as he's traveling around this lake, it's real easy for people to see, and they could especially see the huge crowds. And so he was drawing huge crowds by now. And so he looks up, his heart is moved with compassion for these people. And it tells us in the other gospels, he began to heal their sick. It says here in verse 2, because they saw the signs which he had performed on those who were diseased. I look at that and I think, you know, that's the first sign of trouble. We've talked about it at length because uh, we've looked at over and over again, people have had a low view. Their, their view of Jesus has fallen short. It's a low view of what he had come to do. He's using the miracles to illustrate the fact that he has power as God to intervene in human, human affairs, especially when it comes to sin, when it comes to saving us from ourselves. And yet these people are seeking him because they see the signs. They see these ooh-ah, the spectacular that he's doing. And so they're chasing after that sort of as an end to itself. And we'll see that more as we go along. Now, I want to take a bit of a break here, and we're going to look at a few slides. Uh, if you could turn down the house lights, uh, Richard, or the not the house lights, but yeah, those two. Just take a look at a few slides. 
I want to talk about where this miracle took place. All right, there are several places. There is this is called Mount Arbel. It's a beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful places in Israel. Um, been up there a couple of times, and it's gorgeous up there. Now, this is just north of the Sea of Tiberias, and it's a place, it's one of the only places on the Sea of Galilee where you could have the people go up on a mountain and yet have room for 5,000 people, or 15,000 if you want to talk about the women and children as well. So this is just north, again, of the city of Tiberias. This is a modern-day photo. It's a, it got it from Google Earth. And that's just the, the lower left is the, the northerly part of the city of Tiberias. So the other place is another place called Tabga. And that is just, it's on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's only about a mile and a half from Capernaum. The text here says that these guys head for Capernaum. And when they got three or four miles out, this is five and a half miles from Capernaum. So that's one of the things that indicates that this is the place where he did this miracle. The other thing is in verse 23, uh, John writes that Tiberius is near the place where they had prayed and broken the bread and ate. So uh, I believe that this is the place. There's Tabka. There's another place called Bethsaida. That's north. It's inland, actually. It's up on the Jordan River a ways. And again, we're told in the narrative here that Jesus looks out and he watches these guys go across the lake. And you couldn't do that from that place. So that said, he may have fed crowds more than once. I don't know. We don't, won't know till we get there. But for the purpose of looking at this, this is the place that makes the most sense. Now, as we look at these slides, I'm going to, if you notice this green area that's in the yellow dotted circle, the oval down there, it's at the base of Mount Arbel. It's an easy place uh, to come in and out of the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, which is, it's, it's, a, it's a lake. It's a freshwater lake. Uh, and then up on the mountain, because after Jesus dismisses the crowd, we'll see that he goes up on the mountain to pray. Again, the geography fits perfectly here. Now we're going to move from this slide and we're going to look at another slide, the next one, which is if we were, it, and this is actually, again, it's on a, a modern day road, and you can see the slope of Mount Arbel from this vantage point. It slopes gently. Again, the people could come in. This is the green area to the left is the green area that we saw in the aerial view a minute ago. And so it's a, it would be a, a perfect spot for this to take place. There, there's only maybe two places on the lake that will handle this. It's very mountainous around the Sea of Galilee. And so, again, following what the Bible talks about as far as it being near Tiberias, this is the only place that makes sense. Let's go to the next slide. We're going to go up on the mountain, looking down towards where we were just looking up. And it says there in verse 23 that there was much grass in the place. Um, and so this would be like looking from the top of Mount Ar Arbel, looking down at Tiberias. You see the city in the background there. Next slide. At the very northerly end of this is called the Cliffs of Arbel, and it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. You can see by the, the photograph how far above the Sea of Galilee you are. And I believe that when Jesus went up on this mountain, after he dismisses the crowd, which we'll look at, and he sits down to pray, and it says that he's looking out and he's watching these guys go across the lake when the storm comes up. And it's significant. Again, the main reason why we do this, folks, is so that we have a point of reference and this stops being just a Bible story and we can actually connect it to a physical location. Uh, again, if you don't believe that this is the place, that's fine. We're not going to argue about it. 
But I believe this is the place, and I believe that this is a significant spot because it's the only place that gives a significant vantage point of the whole. You can stand up there, uh, and when Stacy and I stood up there, and actually I sat down to pray for a while, and it was just looking out, I could see the entire rim of the Sea of Galilee from that spot. I mean, it was just a gorgeous spot. So the cliffs here, uh, later on, the Romans, the people were hiding uh, when the Romans came in. And when during the rebellion, when the Jews rebelled against Rome, uh, the Jews were hiding in the cliffs here, and the Romans were letting down their soldiers by ropes, and they were actually using their swords and uh, executing people in the rocks. Uh, this, this places a, a lot of significance over years uh, in this location. Another thing about this location is just north of the valley, or the, the Mount Arbel, is called the Valley of Doves. We'll look at a map later on that shows that when we get to the actual part where he's on the sea. But the Valley of Doves is a low area, and there's an ancient road that goes down to Nazareth, okay? And then it goes out to the sea. The significant part about that is when weather would come in from the Mediterranean, this was one of the gateways. You know how, like, if you have a mountainous area, the clouds will stack up against the mountains, and they'll go through where it's low. Well, Wind and storms would come through north of Mount El Arbel. Uh, it's called the Plains of Genesaret. It was a low area. And they would whip up storms on this lake to where sometimes they had swells that were 14 feet high. I mean, the Sea of Galilee is significant geographically because it's one of the lowest places on it. It's like 600 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded by mountains. And so what happens there is the sun beats down on that lake all day long and it stores energy from the sun, the radiated energy. It heats the water. And then at night, what happens is the, the energy starts to escape. It comes up out of the water. And so you have this huge mass of hot air coming up, which draws air in from the mountains all around. It's a pretty barren landscape. And so the, the winds get horrendous on this lake. I mean, storms would blow up like that. On this, on this lake. So it's not unusual these guys would be in a storm on the lake. What is unusual is that they would be scared to death in a storm on the lake. That means it was a pretty bad storm. So with that, we'll move on. Verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So this is coming full circle in the Gospel of John. We've already looked at one Passover here in this Gospel, and so this is a year later. It's coming up to the Passover time, which meant that was one of the three pilgrimage feasts in Israel, which meant that there would be a lot of people traveling. There'd be a lot of people on the road. And of course, with the Sea of Galilee being flat and then the mountains right up against it, the roads would go right by where Jesus was doing these things. And so he was gathering crowds that were headed to Jerusalem for the Passover as they went. And so in verse 5, it says, And Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming towards him. Again, interesting, I, I want to pause here. The other Gospels record, both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the disciples came and gave Jesus some advice at this point. And, which is usually not a great idea. Um, usually when I try to give him advice, it falls kind of short, and it did here. They told him to dismiss the crowds and send them away, that they should go fend for themselves for lunch. And he said, tell them to sit down. But the other Gospels record that. John leaves it out. This is a very brief account that John brings. And so as we blend the Gospels, we, we sort of flesh it out. We get a better idea of what's going on here with the guys and with Jesus. And so 
Uh, they say, send, send the crowds away. Let them go into the surrounding towns and find food. Well, it was late in the day. They would have never made it back. And Jesus knew that. And so he says, in, in, still in, in verse 5, he says to Philip, he says, well, sh- where shall we buy bread that these may eat? One of the things that Mark inserts here is that when Jesus looked and he saw the multitude, he said that it says that he was filled with compassion because they were a sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus, now as he's having this dialogue with Philip, uh, it says in verse 6, that he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now that is key to understanding this entire chapter. Jesus is essentially, or the, John is essentially saying, Jesus said this, where are these guys going to get bread to eat? Where are we going to buy food? There's no place close by. Uh, Tiberias is a big city now, but it was probably a hole in the road back then. And it wasn't, it, it just, it was a question that he asked, a sincere question. He wasn't being manipulative, but he was testing. He was wanting to let these guys know he knew what he was going to do. John tells us that he knew what he was going to do. And so often in our lives, guys, we are faced with a, a consequence. We're faced with a trial, a storm or something else that comes up and the Lord tests and he does test. He does allow us to go through things. He knows what he's going to do. That's the point here. And that's the point that we'll get to as we look further down in this morning's message. But that's what he wants to illustrate is Jesus knows already how this is going to go. And he's testing his men because he wants to grow his men. He wants to grow them so that when they go out, they will be convinced in themselves that the things they'd experienced were true, they were powerful, and that they were durable truths that they could communicate to others as far as this Jesus guy that had the ability to manipulate nature, which is what he does in both miracles that we look at this morning. So he puts Philip to the test. And Philip, in verse um, 7, answers him and says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. I'm a pragmatist. You guys know what a pragmatist is? It's somebody that's just kind of logical about things. You know, and I would imagine if, if, Pil- if Philip could have had like a pocket calculator, he'd have been out there kind of, you know, like kind of, you know, punching the numbers in. Yeah, eight months wages isn't going to do it, Jesus. I mean, thousands upon thousands of people standing there. And Jesus is asking him a very simple question. What are we going to do about food? And Philip is trying to figure it out in the natural. That's so often what God wants us not to do. He says, stop leaning to your own understanding. Stop trying to figure it out in the natural. That We looked at those six things that have happened so far in this gospel, and this is the beginning of their totally not getting it. And Philip says, I don't know what we're going to do. 200 denarii, 200 days wages are not going to do it, Jesus. Wouldn't even come close. I mean, if we could take 200 days wages times 15,000 people and then divide that by how many bread, how many fish, and, and he's doing this whole thing. And, and I mean, it doesn't ever say, and I wonder sometimes, you know, it's like if it was me, if I were Jesus, about that point I'd be rolling my eyes like, are you serious? <laughs> You're not getting this, Philip. So, Anyway, one of the disciples, Andrew, verse 8, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. This is another one of those verses that I wish was two verses. Because the first half is, there's, 
there's a little boy here, Jesus. He's got five barley loaves, little loaves like little pita loaves, and two little sardines. The, the, the predominant fish in, in the Sea of Galilee were these little sardine-like fish that they'd pickle and as they could preserve them that way. Uh, won't get into all that, but it was probably these little tiny fish, larger than a fishing bait sardine, but very small. And, and here, you know, Andrew says, this kid has a sack lunch. And I just picture the scene unfolding, and it's like he says this, and I picture everybody stopping and looking at Andrew. It's like, what? Five barley loaves and two fish. And then Andrew's response is, well, but uh, what are they among so many? You know, and it's like he recovers it at that point. This is a great scene. Here we have a guy, little kid, with a sack lunch. Essentially, I mean, it's not a sack lunch, but I mean, what we would equivalent or make the equivalent of, he's got a, a lunch to take with him. And, and his mom, I, I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about, you know, Mordecai Ham. We've, we've heard about him lately, you know, that he was the guy that was doing the crusade, the evangelistic outreach when Billy Graham gave his life to Christ. He could have no idea that that man would go on and be used of God so greatly as to draw millions of people to Christ over his lifetime. And here's a mom. She sends her kid off. I don't know if she's in the crowd or she's at home, you know, saying, where are you going? And I'm going to see the healer guy, you know, or whatever that was. I don't, I'm not sure what happened, but we do know that this kid has his lunch. And, and Andrew says, well, you know, we could use that. His mother could never have known that that lunch was going to feed 15,000 people that day. Think about it. These guys, I mean, we know that if you've been in church for long, you've seen, you've heard this story so many times, and yet these guys are living it. They are just being exposed to this for the first time. It's not making any sense. You know, they, they've got this little tiny bit of food in this enormous, ginormous crowd that's stretching out along this mountain. And, and Jesus says, yeah, that'll work. When he gets a hold of this kid's food. Now, barley loaves, understand too, you know, we're not talking about smoked salmon and rosemary sourdough, okay? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Sounds good. We're talking about barley loaves. That is a peasant's loaf. It's peasant's bread. It, and people, they ate what they could afford, okay? This is like worse than Wonder Bread. If you like Wonder Bread, sorry, but I don't. But I mean, it's, it's, it's mostly air, right? <laughs> so, but I mean, this is a peasant's meal. This is a poor person's sustenance. Barley bread was the cheapest bread you could make in that day. People that had a little money made it with wheat. It was far more nutritious. But barley was simply a grass that was common, and they could take the seeds and make bread from it. And so here's this guy. He's got this meager little lunch. And, and the point of the lesson is he's just, it's like the Lord says to me as I'm looking at this, he says, don't lean to your own understanding. Because in, in these guys' understanding, he's got this little bitty deal, and, and, and he's saying, it's not going to work. There's, what is this among so many? But, you know, that's happened over and over and over again in God's word. What about the guy that said, I only have a slingshot. What's good is that with a giant in the Philistines? What about the guy that says, I only have the jawbone of a donkey? 
what good is that with a thousand Philistines? What about the guy that said, I only have this stick. You want me to part the Red Sea? Or I only have this torch and this clay pot. What is that against 135,000 Amalekites? Gang, the, the Word of God tells us that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That he does these things on purpose so that he can demonstrate that it's only by his power they're going to happen. There's only, it's only going to happen because he makes it happen. It is absolutely illogical and impossible for it to happen on its own, and yet he's going to work with it. And these guys, he wants these guys to get, I am going to work way beyond what you understand, and that's the only way that you're going to accomplish anything in the kingdom of God. We had this, this seminar, this training yesterday, and for the people going to Africa, one of the things that was said was, you know, you're going to get there, and you're going to try to do it in your own power. And you might even take out a track because you go blank when you're walking down a dirt path and you step into somebody's hut. You might go blank when you want to share your test, share the gospel. And so you take out a card and you might recite it by rote. You said, you know, you're going to get to the end of yourself. Maybe by the next couple of days, each person goes through this sort of a mini crisis in faith where they get to the end of themselves because that's the beginning of where God can work. And gang, it's true in our lives. The end of ourselves is the beginning of where God can work. Over and over and over again, I've seen in my life and in the lives of many others, that when our lives are pressed in on every side, when our backs are against the wall, when we are faced with a trial or a storm that is so big we have no idea which way to turn, he shows up. He does his work. He exercises his power. Why? Because he loves us. And he loves these people. He's moved with compassion, it says. Verse 10, and Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number of about 5,000. Talked about that, that was the men, but probably about 15,000. That's a rough estimate. But thousands and thousands more than the men. Verse 11, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, hang on a second. These guys are living this. Again, we, we know the end from the beginning. We know he's gonna, what he's going to do, right? They don't have a clue. So these guys, after they're finished staring at, at Philip or Andrew for making his nonsensical, well, got this little lunch, and then Jesus says, well, give that stuff to me. And they hand it to him. He breaks the bread and then he gives thanks. There's still 15,000 people standing there and Jesus is blessing the food. But there isn't any food, really. I mean, there's a little tiny bit and they're probably, their jaws are probably on the ground at this point. He distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So these guys could have seconds, thirds, fourths. They were stuffed when they were done. They were absolutely glutted. I mean, I looked at the, the original language in the different Gospels, and it's like, they were full. I mean, the Greek word is full. <laughs> they couldn't eat anymore, probably unbuttoning their jeans. They didn't have jeans. But, but you know what you do when you're full. <laughs> so... 
But they kept breaking these, the loaves. They kept breaking them and breaking them and breaking them. Every time they reached in the basket for the fish, there was more fish. And they fed every single man, woman, and child in the place. And they were, when they were all done, there were leftovers. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Again, that's significant. When he says that nothing is lost, he doesn't want the food or the lesson to be lost. Huge lesson in this. We're getting to it. I think about when they were filled. I remember when Stacy and I were in Thailand doing uh, some mission work there uh, in northern Thailand. We had these Burmese pastors that came over, and every day we had lunch with the people in our school. And there was this one particularly boisterous, boisterous Burmese pastor that he was always just like, he was like my personal accommodation person. He just wanted to make sure that I had food and that everything was good and that, you know, I was taking care of it. He was just so sweet. I, I mean, but I learned about their customs. And number one, they eat rice there because they don't have a lot of food and the rice gives them a full feeling. That's the primary purpose of rice in developing countries. It's cheap and it fills you up. We worried because if we eat too much rice, you get like this flu-like symptoms. You get rice belly is what they call it. It's essentially your, your intestines just stop. They say, you've had enough of this stuff. And you get a big ball of rice in your gut that you can't get rid of. And it's terrible. I never got it because I love rice probably. But uh, anyway, so, but these guys, I mean, they ate rice to be full because they only ate once a day. And when we brought them for the school, we fed them three times a day and we fed them very nutritious meals. And so it was a blessing to them that the, the guy that oversees the ministry there, Charlie, uh, whom you may meet in the spring, we're going to see about getting he and his wife up here, but um, the guy that, that oversees it is, was committed to making sure these guys had really nutritious meals while we were in this training, this, this intensive that we were doing with them. Well, this one day, this guy, I, I was trying to remember his name uh, the other day when I was looking at this, and I don't remember his name, but this guy's sitting next to me. And, and he says, oh, Pastor John, Pastor John, you need to eat. You need to eat. He's always telling me, I need to eat. He's pushing food at me, you know. And then I had taken a ladle of soup and put it into my bowl, and he decided I didn't have enough chicken. Now, the way they do chicken in Asia, they don't do it like pieces and parts. You know, here's a wing, here's a leg, here's a thigh. You know, they don't do that. They just take a big cleaver. They go chop, 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 chop. It's cut. And they do that because they eat the marrow out of the bones. There's a purpose to that, and it exposes all the bones. So anyway, he reaches into the soup with his hand, with his bare hand. I'm an American. I'm very American at this point. And he goes, here, you need more chicken. Whomp! And he puts it in my bowl. My appetite kind of left at that point because I had seen what he was doing with his, with his hand. But different cultures. Um, in this culture, the reason why they gathered up the fragments of the food was that was to feed the servants who had been serving. It was to feed the people who had been doing the servant, the, the serving of the food. That was how they did it. They didn't tip. They had food left over. And so when Jesus tells these, his 12 guys, he says, go gather up the fragments. Go gather up the leftovers. It's on purpose because he wants to make a point with his men. So they gathered them up, verse 13, and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. 
I'm glad it doesn't say they gathered up the fish. That would be kind of stinky. So we have 12 men and 12 baskets. There's one each. You know, so often when we look at God's word, um, it's remarkable. I, I always picture when I look at things like this, what would, have, what would the look have been when they looked at Jesus that day? Would there have been just a, an intense knowing? You know, as they're looking at him like, you're up to something, you know, uh, and, and he's smiling perhaps, that wonderful smile that I'm sure he had that we'll get to see one day. I don't know, but I just wonder, this is such an intense scene here that what would it have been like for these guys as they're going through it? I do know that Jesus knew and he intended that this lesson be etched into their hearts and that it lasts in their hearts. Verse 14, And those men, uh, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who's come into the world. So they're kind of getting it a little bit. They're thinking in Deuteronomy 18 where uh, Moses talks about a prophet that comes into the world that will come uh, after him. And, and the Jews were looking for the prophet. They still are looking for a man as opposed to God. And, and so they're, they're sort of the lights are coming on. This is very significant. This is supernatural. This is special. But they're really still not getting it. Therefore, verse 15, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and to take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Talk about a dramatic stop to what's going on and a shift in focus. Jesus shuts it down immediately because he perceives what's going on in their hearts is again, their view of him is falling short. They're looking at him as a provider. And of course he's a provider. He tells us to give us this day our daily bread. I mean, he wants us to seek him for provision. But this is about far more than providing lunch or dinner. This is about the fact that he has the ability to control things in a supernatural way that would increase people's faith and reliance upon him in a way that they weren't getting. So he sends them home and he goes up on the mountain to pray. That was what he had gone there to begin with, to do, to begin to do anyway when he first started there. But this whole thing unfolds. It goes south at the end because, and it's indicated in the other gospels that his men were part of the group that wanted to put him on their shoulders and sack him and haul him off to Jerusalem and install him as king. And we'll look at that more when we get to when he's in the synagogue at Capernaum. But here it's significant because it says that he not only dismisses the crowds, but he makes his disciples get in a boat. It doesn't say it in John, but it does in the other gospels that he actually says, get in the boat now, go. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, he's, he's very definite in the way that he instructs his men. And so that leads me to believe that they were part of this whole hoopla because they were still trying to figure it out. Now, when we look at Jesus walking on the water, I'm going to look at a couple more slides here. Jesus and his men on the lake. And again, instead of calling it Jesus walking on water, you guys have all heard that. It's really not so much about him walking on the water as his interaction with his men on the lake. Okay, yeah, he does a miracle. He does the miraculous. I mean, a few years ago, 
one of the tourist places in Israel built a plexiglass platform in the Sea of Galilee, an inch below the water's surface, so that people could go out there and get pictures of themselves walking on the water. I don't think he had plexiglass here, guys. So he's going to have an interaction with his guys that direct, directly links back to these events on the mountain. So as we look at this, I want to look at a couple more slides. Uh, well, we'll go to verse 16 first. Um, now, when evening had come, his disciples went down to the sea and got into the boat and went over the sea towards Capernaum. And it was already dark, note that. And Jesus did not come to them. So Matthew and Mark, again, they say that Jesus made them get in the boat. And then he went up on the mountain and it says there that he went up there to pray. Uh, it doesn't mention here that part of the account, but that's exactly what happened. Go ahead. All right. This is the Sea of Galilee. If you can notice in the lower left, that's about how far it is from Nazareth. Just so you have a point of reference. Just thought I'd throw you with that little piece of information. But the, where Tiberias is and where Mount Arbel is and the feeding of the 5,000, uh, it shows the proximity of that to Capernaum, which is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So that area is about five and a half miles. If you look at the blue dotted line, it's about five and a half miles across. When these guys, it says when they got out into the middle of the lake, very often what they did, this was their main transportation. The guys that lived around the lake, and these guys did. They lived at Capernaum. Jesus had relocated his ministry to Capernaum at this point. And they had come from probably from Capernaum when they went down to Mount Arbel uh, when they wanted to get away. But uh, the point is here is that it's a distance across. They hopscotched along the shore when they wanted to go to places. And so that's what they were doing here. Again, five and a half miles, the wind comes up. Who knows where they ended up in the middle of the night? But next slide. But that's about where it is. Now, there's a place in Israel, if you ever visit there, or if you have visited there, there's, that's called Tabga. And if you see it here, it's only a mile and a half along the same shoreline as Capernaum. That is the traditional site since about the fourth century, because under Constantine, they... they, they declared this site where Jesus fed the 5,000. And I actually, frankly just disagree. It doesn't fit the text in any of the accounts. And it's too close for these things to have happened. And for Jesus to see the guys out on the lake, why would they go out in the middle of the lake when they could just skirt along the shore? It, it doesn't make sense. So that's the best guess. I put north here just so you kind of reference on all these slides. If you want to look at them later, that's fine, or I can send them to you or whatever. But it's just, again, it's important to understand this is what's happening here. He's there north of Tiberias, tells his guys, get into a boat. We're going to go across and we're going to do some things on the other side. Things come up in the middle of the night. Verse 18. Then the sea arose and because a great wind was blowing. Okay. This is Storm 102, all right? Uh, storm 102 is Jesus sends them ahead in the boat alone. It's overcast probably because there's a storm. It's nighttime. Mark says Jesus was watching them from the mountain, okay, in the Gospel of Mark. And he sees at night, that's interesting to me, from three or four miles away. And so, again, the natural man, and it makes sense, but we're not talking about natural man here. We're talking about Jesus, and he's definitely not the natural man. So when this happens, we see that Jesus, he's keeping an eye on them. He's watching them as they go into this trial. 
again, remember it says that, that they, didn't, they didn't understand when he was doing the loaves and the fishes. They didn't get it. But that Jesus' lesson to them was that he knew ahead of time what was going to happen. He's doing it again. That's what he's going to do with the guys out on the lake. He's testing them again. And, and the text bears that out when you blend the Gospels here. I was also thinking Romans 8.27 says that he makes intercession for us. That as we go along, we're living our lives, that Jesus lives to make intercession for us. He prays to the Father for us. He sees what we're going through. He knows the end of it, and he sees. I draw great comfort from that. Anyway, verse 19, so when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. All right, so picture this. I mean, these guys don't have night vision. So there's a storm going on. The sea is just stirred up. I mean, the other gospels say that the sea was a mess out there. And it says in Mark that he saw them straining, rowing against the wind. The wind was against them. And it says it was the fourth watch of the night. So the... The Jews divided the night into four parts. The first watch was sundown to nine o'clock. It was, it was 12 hours, 12 hour days, 12 hour nights, regardless of what time of year it was. That's how they measured it. Talked about that briefly before. So each section of the night, each three hour section was one of the watches. The first watch was six to nine. Second was nine to 12. Third was 12 to three. And here the fourth watch of the night goes all the way up to sunrise. So it's late. These guys have been on the lake all night long, straining against the oars. It's not a very far trip in calm water for them to go from Tiberias to Capernaum. So again, you can absolutely deduce that these guys are pretty upset with what's going on with the weather. These are huge swells that they're fighting. It's a huge storm. It's blowing them all over the lake, and they're afraid. They're definitely in a place where they don't have any control over what's going on in their lives at that moment. They probably were sweating, trying to pull the boat to where they're not going to get swamped by the waves, they're, and they're moving the winds against them, and so they're, they're getting pushed as they're trying to go. I mean, it would be a mess. It was, this would have been a real trial for these guys. Understand, it's a literal storm, and it's overwhelming a bunch of professional fishermen that used to, they were very used to working on this lake. So that's the scene here. They've been doing it all night, and they're probably tired. So they see Jesus walking along. You know, perhaps lightning was flashing, and when it flashed, they're like, did you see that? I don't know. Oh, I saw that. You know, and, and, and he's walking. He's getting closer to them as he goes. And, and what a great scene. I, I, just, I hope we get to see these things when we get there. I really do. So in verse 20, he says to them, it's me. Don't be afraid. And my response would be, yeah, right. <laughs> You're not in this boat. Because Storms 102 is he sends me into the storm by myself. He's not in the boat this time. The first storm, Storm 101, he's in the boat. He's, on a, he's got his head on a pillow. Have you read that in the Gospels? It says he actually has a pillow for his head. Now, and perhaps we'll teach on that someday. I believe that that was the close for the gathering demoniac that he was about to visit on the other side in that storm. Different story. But he's actually got his head on a pillow. He's asleep in the back of the boat and the guys are completely messed up about it. And they wake him up to remind him that he's about to die, right? 
and, and, and so here he is, he gets up, he rebukes the storm, and then they're more afraid from when they were afraid during the storm. It's like, who is this guy that can control nature like that? They're freaked out about him now. So in Storms 102, here they are, they're in the boat by themselves. He's walking across the lake on the water towards them, and they think it's a ghost. And they're absolutely terrified. They're afraid of ghosts. Yeah, they are. That's what it says. I'm not making it up. So they're terrified. Here he comes. He's walking on the water. And, and it says in Mark that he acted like he was going to walk right past him. I just think that's funny. It's like, you know, hey, guys, how you doing? You know, and they're, ah, you know, they're all crazy out there. So he says, it's me. Don't be afraid. Interesting. He uses the phrase, ego ami. I am, the covenant name for God. He says, I am. Don't be afraid. This is the part where Peter says in that account, he says, is that you? If that's you, then, then bid me to come out onto the water towards you. And we're not going to get into that. We're running short on time. But Peter, is, this is where he walks on the water and he starts to take a few steps and he becomes, he becomes aware of how bad the storm is and he starts to sink and Jesus reaches down and catches him. I love that. Interesting, Peter wants to walk on the water and he's forgetting that his, he was renamed Stone. <laughs> I just think that's funny. Verse 21, they willingly received him into the boat. Immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Okay, test over. Don't need the, the lake anymore. Don't need the storm anymore. We're done. We're at the shore. That's how I interpret that. In Mark uh, 6, uh, a couple of verses there, 651 and 52, it says, And he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they marveled. Listen to this. For they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. Wait a minute. Mark is connecting this event with that event. What's going on? What's the point? Jesus knew that they didn't get it. He twisted nature, twisted physics when he fed the 5,000, the 15,000. He did that to demonstrate to them that he has the power over everything, that he is God in the flesh. He demonstrated his power to bring them to a deepening faith that he is who he says he is and he can do what he says he can do, namely to forgive sin. That's why he's here. He's not here. He could have fed these people every day for the rest of their lives and he didn't. He chose not to. And they probably went hungry at times because there was a lot more at stake than what was happening in the physical realm. And so he takes these guys out. He lets them go through this test on the waters because he knows that their hearts are hard and he wants to demonstrate, look, I did that back there to demonstrate to you that when you went out on this lake and you got in this storm, you could rely on me and you're not. Essentially what he's saying is, do you want a bread king or do you want a storm king? He comes to us with questions like that. There are a lot of people out there that are trying to peddle a bread king. A God of prosperity. It's about more than that, guys. 
And Matthew says here at the end of this trial that those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. The bread king says, the guy that wants the bread king says, I want a God that satisfies the same appetites and cravings that I had prior to coming to faith in Christ. I want a cosmic bellhop. And God rejects that every time. And, and, and Jesus doesn't want people to have an underdeveloped faith in him. Yes, he's the provider. Yes, he wants us to pray for our daily bread. Yes, those are important things, but that's not where it stops. He wants us to rely on him in the storms. Philippians chapter 3 contains a stern warning about people whose God is their appetites. The storm king, the king of the storms. Jesus won't let them build on the foundation of material gain because it's the wrong foundation. It's sand. Why? Because there's a difference between provision and prosperity. Sometimes God prospers people. Sometimes he does. And praise the Lord for that. And, and, and people that are plugged into Christ, that, that know him, and that are prospered by him, are often generous in using that for the kingdom of God. And praise the Lord for such as us. But that's not his main purpose in our lives. The bread king says, uh, the guy that wants the bread king says, I want God to do things for me and make me happy. The one who wants the God of the storms knows that Jesus made them get into the boat because they didn't get it. He knows that his disciples are safer in a storm than standing on dry ground with a wrong, wrong concept of who he is. Why? Because there's a difference between holiness and happiness. He's far more interested in what he wants to do in our lives, knowing the end of it, and how comfortable we are at any given moment. I mentioned that before. I'll mention it again, folks. He wants to work in our hearts. He wants us to give him the keys to our hearts and let him work according to his will. Not, I'm going to hold out and let you do this much. Who's on the throne when that's happening? It's me. I don't need a bread king in my life. I need a storm king in my life. Why? Because life is full of storms. I looked at a dear sister this morning who has a storm in her life. And he's the God of the storms. He truly is. He knows what's going on in our lives. He knows the things we face. He knows how weak we are in the midst of those storms. We're no different. You know, we can sit here and look at this and be critical of these guys. I, I'm, I freely confess, gang, I don't have this wired. I get knocked over by the storms just like anybody else. And yet I want him to be who he is. I want him to be the champion in the storms. And there are times where we don't think he's there. There are times where we feel like we're in the boat all by ourselves. And, and it's like, Jesus, where are you? This thing's falling apart. I am in so much pain. I can't even get out of bed in the morning. What is going on? And he wants us to know I'm there. I love you. I'm moved by, with compassion over the things that you're facing. 
That's the God that we serve. That's why these two events are so linked together. That's why he wants to deepen our understanding of who he is and what he's about so that we can walk out of this place and have our faith enlarged and know that he's got this. Whatever that thing is we're facing or that thing that we're yet to face. He's got it. He sees the end from the beginning. It may not be comfortable, but he is bringing us to these places to live a life that is above our circumstances, that we're not moved and just jacked around by every circumstance that hits us. That may be the initial response. It usually is for me. And I pray, Lord, let me get back up and to see you working in the middle of this storm because if if I don't see you, I'm going to sink. If I don't see you, I'm not making it to the other side. Life's full of those things. Praise God that he's there. Let's pray. Father, just thankful so very thankful that you are the God of the storms that we face in our lives. And Lord, I don't know what most people in this room are facing, but I know that you're in it. And I pray that each one would take courage from the things we've discussed this morning and that we would know that we would see you working in the midst of the circumstances that we're dealing with. Perhaps they're old wounds that just seem to continue to bleed. Lord, we pray you, the God of all healing, would come and heal, that you would find hearts that are yielded to you, perhaps in new ways, perhaps in fresh ways, that as we walk forward from here, that we could know beyond any doubt that you are who you say you are and that you are moved in the midst of our circumstances and that you are working and you're working things for our good. Whether we see it or not is really not a consequence to that truth. So we thank you, Father. We thank you for this brief look in your word at these events of the feeding of the people and the men in the storm and seeing how you were simply testing in both cases to bring home the fact that you truly care for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this morning. We pray that you would bring to our remembrance the things that we've looked at as we go forward from here. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.